0: I'm Lonnie Edwards, the founder of The Dog Agency and Pet Insider, and you're listening to the Pet Insider Podcast. This is a show about the latest and greatest across the pet world. Whether you're a pet parent or just a little pet crazy, Pet Insider has you covered. We get it. We're obsessed too.
1: About a billion people get sick every year from diseases that are shared between animals and people. So it's a billion infections every year, several hundred million people die, but a billion people every year get sick from diseases that we share with animals. So once again, there's some of these things that we can tackle together between the animal health community and the human health community, but also the environmental health community.
0: That was a clip from the Circle of Life, the Animal and Human Health Connection presentation from PetCon NYC 2018, which took place at the Javits Center on November 17th. The presentation features Dr. William Karish, Executive Vice President for Health and Policy at EcoHealth Alliance. For those who don't know, PetCon is a pet lover's dream filled with celebrity pet meet and greets, insightful panels, branded activations, and so much more. Visit PetCon.co, that's P-E-T-C-O-N dot C-O, to learn more and to sign up for our newsletter to find out when the next PetCon will take place. Now let's get back to Dr.
1: Karish. Thank you everybody. So I wanted to kind of give you this little talk today to run through our relationship, our relationship with our health and our security, um, with animals and the environment. And so I'm gonna try and do this really quickly in 15 minutes and maybe we'll have some time uh, for questions afterwards. I've been lucky enough to be able to work all around the world, so I did a little map with places in the world uh, that I've been working over the last few decades. Most of my work's been with uh, wildlife, is how I got started. I'm a, a wildlife veterinarian by training. So I've been doing that for many, many years, and, I, and I'm lucky enough to uh, get to go to some very cool places. My commute to work uh, involves flying around with airplanes and crossing rattan bridges, sometimes by boat, that's a liquid nitrogen tank in a dugout canoe, because we're going out in the, in the middle of the Congo. And then sometimes you actually have to get out in the water and walk through water just to get to work before we even start work for the day. So in the earlier session, if any of you are here, um, there was a little talk about should my dog be on heartworms medication every day and is that safe or once a month? And for about 20 years and working in these conditions, I was actually taking ivermectin or heartworm medication myself for 20 years once a month. So I'll just testify to say that it's pretty safe. I think though I have a few little problems, but I don't think it's from heartworm medication. And then I've really been you know, blessed with this opportunity to work with some of the most wonderful animals, not just the wonderful people around the world, but really wonderful animals around the world. Uh, so all through Africa and South America and into Asia, I've been working with uh, orangutans and rhinos and gorillas, uh, mountain lions, African lions, tigers, jaguars, you kind of name it. And even on the, ma- on the sea side of things, the marine side of things, I've been lucky enough to work with sea lions uh, down in South America. Um, as I mentioned, elephants. This is uh, in Central Africa in the Congo forest with forest elephants. I'm one of the few people that have really had the opportunity to work with forest elephants. This one's just sleeping. And then um, up into the deserts of Mali, so if you hear on the news about Darfur and the elephants, oh, in the deserts between Chad and Mali, uh, there's an elephant population there, maybe 500 left in the world. Um, And they migrate maybe three, four, 500 miles every year and move around to find water in this desert condition. So I'm gonna show you one of my little trade secrets on how do you catch an elephant. This one's also anesthetized. Uh, So we have a little video here. That's in the middle, if you can see that little red dart. It's been given a drug that's about uh, 3,000 times the potency of morphine. So about a half a teaspoon uh, will put an elephant to sleep, partially to sleep. You'll see they're kind of low. And if you're lucky, the rest of the elephants run away. If you're not too lucky, the elephants come running after you. But in this case, where we, we ended up with a little video, you can see one went to sleep and uh, the rest of the family ran off and stood in the distance, take the dart out. But if you do this and you leave the elephant sitting on its chest, it'll die, it'll suffocate. So we have about a minute to get the animal on its side so it doesn't suffocate and die on you. And then you say, well, how do you move a six, seven, 8,000 pound elephant? How do you push him over? And you think it's impossible, but it's really not impossible. You just have to get your team convinced that it's possible, so it's kind of a, have to spread this, uh, this psychological condition, like, yes, we can push them over. This, uh, this, well, this girl this is a female elephant, uh, was a little reluctant to go over on her side, and you have to say, okay, let's do it again, we push a little harder, you rock them back and forth, and eventually they'll go, go over, and now it's safe, because they can breathe, because they don't have a diaphragm like we have, so if their chest can't expand, they can't breathe, and they'll suffocate. So that's a little trade secret. If any of you ever get out in the field and need to anesthetize an elephant, you want to remember that. So I want to go down to Patagonia and South America. I would mentioned you know, the sea life and sea creatures. I don't want to just talk you know, say that our health and our well-being is related just to the animals we see running around on the street, but there's a whole group of animals that are dependent on the sea for their food. They eat shrimp, and they eat krill, and they eat uh, calamari or squid and small fish and minnows and anchovies. And there's a big relationship to the harvest in the, far, in the oceans with our own, with the nutrition and the health of these animals. These are southern elephant seals down in Argentina and you can get pretty close to them. So I wanted to kind of show you what we're doing on this planet with this example. So if you get a picture of the earth at night and you'll see the electricity the lights from big cities. So that's Buenos Aires in Argentina there at the top. And you can see all that light from Buenos Aires. And as you go south in Patagonia down to Tierra del Fuego, there's not many humans there, so you don't see too much light there at night. But what they do when they give you these images, you can pull this down from NASA, they cut out the ocean because they don't think we're interested in the ocean, so they don't show us the light at sea. But on, if you look, really, if you ask for the images of light at sea, you'll see there's more light in the ocean than there is on land in South America. And you go, well, that's strange. What's going on out there? And what's really going on out there is boats. And these are fishing boats lighting up the whole ocean at night, more than bigger than the Buenos Aires or bigger than New York. This is electric activity, human activity at sea, and these are just tens of thousands of fishing boats scooping up all the squid, all the calamari that you eat, all the shrimp, all the small fish, and they're just pulling that out of the ocean as fast as they can. So when we think about our connection with the planet and what we're doing, this is clearly unsustainable, and in the meantime, they're taking this this is food that penguins and sea lions and elephant seals are all dependent on. So part of our effort is to try to say, can we set up not just protected areas of national parks on land, but can we have protected areas in the sea that will give places for animals so they can still feed, and we can regulate fishing better on these international fishing fleets. So I really want to kind of get, bring this around to how our health is related to the health of the environment and to the health of animals. So we can see we have dogs sitting on our laps, I've got a little guy up here. Um, And we call this one health. And the fact that the health of the planet, the health of the environment, the health of animals and people are inextricably linked. And we have to take a holistic approach if we're really gonna address a future that is good for all of us on the planet, animals and people included. And we're very linked to the environment. So this is, you know, the El Nino event. So you have these southern oscillations, and there's El Ninos, and we think, oh, there's more rain in California the following year. But it's really just the warming of the ocean and Pacific has an impact all around the globe. So kind of on this graph, I don't know if you can read it, but you can see in South America, when the water gets warmer, the fish go away, millions and millions of penguins die, The sea lions, when they give birth, all the pups die that year because they don't have milk to feed them. All the way across in Africa, we have droughts and flooding in part, so we have more rainfall someplace, less rainfall, and it's a global impact just from that one event, El Nino event, which happens every six or seven years, when warm water from Indonesia comes across the Pacific Ocean and comes to South America. It gives us a little idea of what's going to happen as the Earth warms up. So as we think about climate change, we can look to an El Nino event. It's kind of a precursor, or as a little window into the future of how our planet is all linked and tied together with our health. For infectious diseases, so we th- when we talk about One Health, it's about this relationship, and we think about infectious diseases, viruses and bacteria, And we think that, well, in our daily lives, we don't think it's very common. About about a billion people get sick every year from diseases that are shared between animals and people. So it's a billion infections every year. Several hundred million people die, but a billion people every year get sick from diseases that we share with animals. So once again, there's some of these things that we can tackle together between the animal health community and the human health community, but also the environmental health community. And they have huge costs, so you probably can't read these on the slides, but one small outbreak like SARS or influenza, they, some of them run to 30, 50 billion dollars. So we think about some of these costs as having a, a big medical cost, but it's really not the medical cost. The medical cost is really small. The big cost is an impact on travel and trade. So when you need a part, it has to come from China, but the shipping is shut down because they have some disease there and we're quarantining ships or stopping ships. It has a global impact just like that El Nino event does with a global connectedness because our world is now globalized and interconnected. And what makes these diseases emerge? Why do we see Ebola right now in Africa? Why do we get SARS? Why do we have big flu outbreaks? The biggest reason, it's not a mystery. It's not some secret thing. It's really about how we affect the planet. So land use change, how we use our land around the planet drives as the background Cause of most of these emerging disease outbreaks. The other things that change things are agricultural industry change, and then of course international trade and travel. So we can actually think about what causes these and put in prevention practices to stop doing that. And that's really kind of how I spend my day now, is working with policymakers to say what can we do to stop or prevent more of these diseases from emerging to protect us and to protect our animals. And this temporal pattern, if you look at this graph, every decade we see more and more of these. And in that yellow and green at the top, that's the percentage that are linked with animals. So this disease sharing between animals and people is becoming more common, more prevalent, and we see more of these every year. And it doesn't matter, they just emerge someplace. This is Congo. These are pictures you see when there's an Ebola outbreak, and sadly, that's someone who's died of Ebola. But the Ebola starts with animals. So it comes from bats, it comes from wildlife in the forest, and when people are eating wildlife, it gets into humans, and then it spreads through humans. So we know exactly how it begins, and we know why, because we're disturbing forest habitat, and people are going into forests and doing things that they didn't used to do before. Every year, this is a logging camp in the Congo, so it's a picture, those are logging workers, about 3,000 people live there. Uh, That's a gorilla that's being sold for bushmeat, so they get the meat right from the forest. The quantity of that is about two billion pounds of bushmeat every year, just in Central Africa. So if you think that maybe one in a billion chances of getting a virus like Ebola, well, we have two of those every year. So you see, it's just statistics. So we shouldn't be very surprised about getting these new infectious diseases because the volume, the activity is so high, we don't see it, we live in New York, we don't see that this is going on every day. We're talking about two billion pounds of bushmeat from wild animals just in Central Africa being consumed. And then again in South America, and again in Asia. So no one's eating now, are they? Because this is gonna get a little gruesome. This is a little video I took of a market. This is just a typical food market. There's thousands of these around the world. There's millions of people that buy their food at a market like this every day. And these are dogs actually for sale. So under the table they're live dogs. And then you can pick your dog out or some are already dead and they're serving them. And I'm gonna run through this little market scene. I'm just used walking around with my phone, taking video. Over here, this is um, pig, this is pork. They're cutting up pork and doing that. No one's you know, washing their hands, no one's wearing gloves. They're just walking around in the market. We're just gonna take a quick little walk around the market here. Uh, you go down here, there's some more pork. Those are all live chickens. We know that influenza outbreaks in people, flu outbreaks start with avian influenza in chickens, so now we got live chickens. Swine influenza gets into people. So now we have pigs and chickens all mixing up. Thousands of people are coming to this market. There's somebody just chopping up some meat. Blood is splattering everywhere. Everybody's getting in contact with it. Over here to the left, we're gonna walk around the corner and there's somebody selling, uh, I think it's bats. These are bats, so these are fresh bats. So we know about Ebola, Hendra virus, Nipah virus. They're coming, they gut them for you fresh, you pick out your bat, they kind of clean it for you, so throw the guts on the floor, you take it home and eat it. Over here, somebody's selling rats and rodents. Uh, So this is at a massive scale, like I just said, um, here's some more pig, there's a happy customer, is gonna stick their hands in the meat, and there's some snakes for sale. So I'm saying tens of millions of people every day are getting their food through these systems around the world, and we seem to be surprised that there's a disease outbreak. So the only thing that's surprising is that we're surprised, and it's because we don't really think about that this is going on around the world. And of course, you can get on an airplane and travel anywhere around the world in 24 hours. So things that happen in Asia can be in the United States the next day. So we kinda actually mapped out the riskiest airports in the world. Based on these, you can do a little fancy calculations, and Asia and Africa, and. And uh, South America, you can see a lot of red dots. New York's a red dot, San Francisco's a red dot. So we kind of actually know where these diseases might enter with people coming to the United States. So I just want to finish with something that's a little more common that you might deal with in the, uh, right here in New York with your cat or your dog. This is a bacterial disease. It's called leptospirosis. It's very, very common. There's a vaccine for it. You can vaccinate dogs. You can vaccinate cattle you can, um, to protect them. And it infects humans. People can get it. It's not a fun disease to get. It can destroy your kidneys. It causes abortions, causes fever of unknown origin. Those are kind of the people there that are at risk. And the way I was taught when I went to medical school, veterinary school, was we determine where risk is based on history. So if we look at all the test results for leptospirosis in the United States, we can say, oh, these are the places that are really dangerous in the U.S. But it's just like those emerging diseases I was talking about. This is not actually true. It's just how I was taught in school. And about half, there's a joke, about half of what you're taught in medical school is wrong. And the unfortunate part is we don't know which half. So as we make new discoveries, as we learn more, we can see that. So this is how I was taught about the risk of leptose. So you say, well, if you live in New York, you live in California or Chicago, you should vaccinate your dog for leptospirosis and the rest of the country's safe. But it's wrong because only these people and only these veterinarians sent in samples to be tested. So we have this huge bias about where the results are because it's based on whether or not you want your dog to be tested for leptospirosis. And a lot of people in the country don't have the money, don't think about it, so they're not doing it. So we can do a lot of fancy science, and this is called partial uh, dependence plots, and I'm not gonna bore you with the statistics on how you do this, but trust me, we have a whole team that just does this all day long in the office, and they looked at all these different variables like population, and, and education, and tree cover, and land type, and rainfall, and we did come out with these results and say, these things, are linked with the positive test results. So we took the positive test results and said, what's interesting about those places? And we see that uh, forest cover and scrub cover, these are the things that relate, because remember, this disease has a reservoir in animals and mostly rodents and raccoons, and dogs get it that way and people get it that way. So what we come up with is a risk map for the United States that looks like this. So this is forward-looking instead of backwards-looking. So now we go like, oh, these are the places that are most at risk in the United States, if I can get this to go. And remember, those are the test results. So it's a very different picture. So I'm going from history to forward-looking, and we get a very different view of how to implement a vaccination program, how to protect dogs, how to actually prevent, protect people. And when we look at who vaccinates dogs in the US, it's also mismatched with the risk and the historical data because as I said, some people are more interested in doing this than others. So we have people in Montana vaccinate a lot and they don't in California, except that's where the risk is. So we're really trying to use science now to get people to rethink about what they're doing and realize that these diseases that affect our animals and affect us as people are really linked to environmental factors. So we really need to bring in ecology and the environment more to understand infectious diseases, to understand our health, and to protect our health and the health of our animals. So I just wanted to close with that. We've got Marcello there. The big question might be, is it safe to now? We have a billion people getting sick from animal diseases every year. Is it safe to let your dog lick you in the face? might be a question, and I say sure, go for it, because I think, you know, 5,000 people die every year falling out of bed in, in the United States, and we don't have that with dogs licking you. so I'm just saying, it's probably safe, you can go for that. Um, so I, I think we might have a second or two for questions. I do wanna thank uh, Margo, and Lonnie, and Kala from the Dog Agency. There's a little podcast, it's not actually little, it's about 40 minutes. If you've got 40 minutes, some time, they did a a podcast on the subject with me so you can pull it from the dog agency folks. And then my friend, Andrea Arden, who kind of pulled me into all of this and got me here, and this is really fun for me. Um, So I just wanted to say thanks.
0: That was the Circle of Life, the Animal and Human Health Connection presentation from PetCon NYC 2018. To learn more about PetCon and to sign up for our newsletter to find out when the next PetCon will take place, visit PetCon.co. That's P-E-T-C-O-N dot C-O. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Please leave us a five-star review and make sure to subscribe so you don't miss a thing. If you have any pet-related topics you want us to cover, email us at podcast at petinsider.com. I'm Lonnie Edwards, and thank you for listening to the Pet Insider Podcast. Talk soon!